The following show is pre-recorded. Please, no calls at this time. From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. With today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. A happy Tuesday in the octave of Christmas. Father Wade Menezes is in the house, a home game for Father Wade as he is home with his confreres celebrating the octave of Christmas. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack, on this fourth day within the octave of the celebration of the Nativity of our Lord. And uh, what better topic to talk about during the octave itself than what Holy Mother Church teaches about why the Word became flesh, specifically four reasons why the Word became flesh. And I'd like to comb through these now as our springboard topic for today. They are found in the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph numbers 456 through 460, inclusive. That's a total of, what, five paragraphs, talking about these four reasons why the Word became flesh. Number one, in order to save us by reconciling us with God. Number two, so that thus we might know God's love. Huh? Number three, to be our own model of holiness. That's why the Word became flesh. And number four, to make us partakers in the divine nature of God. Number 456 tells us that within the Nicene Creed, we answer by confessing, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Huh? 457 talks about the first reason why the Word became flesh, that is, in order to save us by reconciling us with God, who loved us and sent His Son to be the expiation for our sins. The Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world, we are told, and He was revealed to take away sins. That's quoting 1 John 4 and 1 John 3, and a great quote by St. Gregory of Nyssa, early church father, about this first reason of the four, why the Word became flesh in order to save us by reconciling us with God. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, quote, Sick, our nature demanded to be healed. Fallen, it had to be raised up. 
dead. It needed to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, we needed help. Slaves, we needed a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant, he asks? Did they not move Almighty God to descend to human nature and visit it, since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state? Again, St. Gregory of Nyssa, that's number 457 from the Catechism. The first reason of four why the Word became flesh, in order to save us by reconciling us with God. A very prominent theme of uh, John the Evangelist's first letter, especially in chapters 4 and chapters 3. Also, Number 458 gives us the second reason why the Word became flesh, so that thus we might know God's love, that God loves us, right? In this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, quoting John 3.16. And just above that, when we heard, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, that's quoting 1 John 4 again, specifically verse 9. So that's the second reason why the Word became flesh, so that we might thus know God's love, properly speaking, and experience it, love it, right? He loves us, we love him, and we're called to love one another. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Number 459 gives us the third reason why the Word became flesh of the four that the Catechism teaches so beautifully. The Word became flesh to be our own model of holiness. Jesus says, quote, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, I am the way and the truth and the life, he continues. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's a beautiful, beautiful uh, doctrine to remember, that that outside of his name, there is no salvation. On the mountain of the transfiguration, the Father commands, listen to him. Mark uh, and Deuteronomy, from Mark chapter 9, the gospel, and it's hinted at in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus is the model for the Beatitudes and the norm of the new law. He did not come to abolish the old law, the Ten Commandments, but came to bring it to perfection, and he gives us the Beatitudes, right? Love one another as I have loved you, John 15 and Mark 8. This love implies an effective offering of oneself after his own example of the God-man Jesus Christ. So the Word became flesh to be our own model of holiness. He's, he's the chief mediator, capital C, capital M. He's our guide. He's our, our model uh, for the love that he showed all to the world. We are to do the same by modeling our own lives after him. So again, that third reason why the word became flesh, to be our model of holiness. And number 460 of the Catechism gives us the fourth of these four reasons why the word became flesh, to make us partakers of the divine nature, right? For this is why the word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of man. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us, so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. That's quoting St. Irenaeus, who's commenting on 2 Peter 1, verse 4. And also a great quote from St. Athanasius, for the Son of God became man so that we might become like God. He actually says that we might become God, but, but he means that by an analogous sense through partaking of the divine nature, God's own sanctifying grace working in us and with us. 
and for us, as Dr. Scott Hahn would say. Uh, the only begotten Son of God, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our human nature so that he made man, might make men like gods. We are called to partake in the, in the divine nature of God through his sanctifying grace working in us and with us and for us. And of course, the, the seven ordinary channels to receive uh, his sanctifying grace is the seven sacraments, each one uh, granted to the individual uh, at a different phase of their life, baptism, infancy, first Holy Communion, first Eucharist, a childhood around age seven, the age of reason, um, confession, holy confession throughout one's life. Uh, adulthood would be matrimony or, or, or the priesthood, a sacrament of holy orders, and then um, uh, anointing of the sick, end-of-life issues. So we, we see the seven sacraments plugged in throughout this, this whole phase of human life, uh, which the latest longevity statistics, Jacks say, are around 78 for those of us living in the West. So we see the, the seven sacraments peppered throughout this entire rhythm of, of this 78-year life that we live as an average. And so the, the Word became flesh for these primary four reasons. Again, in order to save us by reconciling us with God, so that thus we might know God's love to be our model of holiness, and number four, to make us partakers in the divine nature. I'd like to invite um, our listeners uh, sometime today to go to the Fathers of Mercy YouTube page, and Father Tony Stevens, my confrere here in Community Life, uh, preached a wonderful homily on these four reasons why the Word became flesh on Christmas morning here in our beautiful Chapel of Divine Mercy at the Fathers of Mercy Generalate uh, in Auburn, Kentucky. So if you go to the Fathers of Mercy YouTube page, you will see Father Tony Stevens' Christmas morning homily posted, where he elaborates more on these four reasons why the Word became flesh. And so we want to incorporate these four reasons uh, into our own spiritual life and live them and know them and know them and live them in order to save us by reconciling us with God, sinners that we are. Remember Jesus' first words of, of, of his public discourse was repent, same with John the Baptist. The second reason, so that thus we might know God's love, that he sent his only begotten Son, John 3.16. Number three, to be our own model of holiness. His yoke is easy, his burden light, and fourthly, to make us partakers in the divine nature. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've got a great new item at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's the Prayer Book for Tired Parents, Practical Ways to Grow in Love and God and Get Your Family to Heaven by David and Debbie Cowden. Uh, the Prayer Book for Tired Parents uh, includes relatable, real-life reflections on the struggles that parents with young children face, as well as heartwarming stories on how they can make you a stronger parent 
and a better Catholic. That's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. It's a bonus. It's a bonus open line Tuesday. Uh, it's the first Tuesday of Advent, so we got a little bonus uh, incarnation springboard. And uh, while we were trying to get our act together over here at EWTN Radio with the gallivanting Father Wade Menezes, um, now we're going to settle in for uh, what was scheduled to be today's actual springboard topic. But we want to give you the phone numbers first. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. So, Father Wade, there's the, the old joke, what's the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. That's correct. <laughs> so you're going to talk a little bit about the liturgy today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we're in the first week of Advent, the new liturgical year, so I want to talk about exactly what, what we mean by liturgy, huh? about this liturgical year. Uh, the word liturgy, Jack, comes from a Greek word that means a public duty or a public work. When we speak of the liturgy in reference to the Catholic Church, we mean the forms of prayer and actions and ceremonies used in the public or official worship of the church. This official worship consists principally, of course, in the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the source and summit of the Christian life, the Most Holy Eucharist, the administration of the other six sacraments as well of the church, and the singing or recitation of the divine office, also known as the breviary. Uh, what is meant by the liturgical year? Well, the liturgical year is the annual cycle of sacred seasons and feasts in the form of public prayer and worship centered in the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the divine office. This yearly cycle, called also the ecclesiastical year or church year, presents the story of our redemption in dramatic form. The church with the faithful, as participants, reenacts the life of Christ and at the same time unfolds a summary of our entire faith. This sacred drama of the liturgical year, Jack, presents the history of God's eternal love for the human race. How beautiful is that? It reminds us of the events of the Old and New Testaments, of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the founding of the church. It then traces the life and sufferings of the church to the end of the world, to Christ's second coming, and into eternity. Therefore, the liturgical year is really a dramatic method and means, if you will, of reliving the life of Christ through, with, and in Christ and his bride, the church, which he founded. It is a drama in which we are not mere spectators, no, but actually actors working with our divine Lord. Uh, seasons, uh, saints, and celebrations during the liturgical year are laid out in a yearly liturgical calendar. The liturgical year is made up of six seasons. Uh, Advent is four weeks of preparation before the celebration of Jesus' birth. Christmas recalls the nativity of Jesus Christ and his manifestation to the peoples of the world. Lent is a 40-day period of penance uh, before Easter, which also focuses on the three eminent good works in a special way, along with the 14 works of mercy, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And the sacred Paschal Triduum is the holiest three days of the entire liturgical year, wherein the Christian people recall the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus from Holy Thursday night 
to the Easter Vigil, Holy Saturday night. And that's considered its own liturgical season. It's, it's the shortest season of the liturgical year, the sacred triduum. Easter, or the Easter season, is the 50-day period of joyful celebration of the Lord's resurrection from the dead and His sending forth of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which closes then the 50-day Easter season, right? And then, of course, ordinary time. Can't forget ordinary time. It's divided into two sections, one span of four to eight weeks after Christmas time, and another lasting about six months after Easter time, uh, wherein the faithful consider the fullness of Jesus' teachings and works among His people. The mystery of Christ made present unfolded through the cycle of the whole liturgical year as it coalesces with the secular 12-month year and the the earthly seasons of of the year, uh, calls us to live his mystery in our own daily lives. This call is best illustrated, of course, in the lives of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, celebrated by the church throughout the year. There is no tension, at least there definitely should not be, between the mystery of Christ and the celebration of the saints, but rather a marvelous harmony. The Blessed Virgin Mary is joined by an inseparable bond to the saving work of her Son, and the feasts of all the saints proclaim the wonderful works of Christ in His servants and offer the faithful fitting examples for their imitation. In the feasts of Mary and the saints, Jack, the Paschal Mystery of Christ is proclaimed and renewed. So that, if you will, is a, um, a, a synopsis of the entire liturgical year, and uh, it gives us a glimpse of how the mystery of Christ is made present uh, through the liturgical action of Holy Mother Church, uh, through a 12-month cycle or, or period uh, that coalesces with the regular earthly cycles of the seasons. And uh, we have these beautiful liturgical seasons that comb through the, the history of salvation and, and the coming of Christ uh, and His for being foretold uh, in the Old Testament, of course. So we, wanna, we want our own secular temporal lives to revolve around uh, the entire liturgical year. I'm here this, this week in my hometown of Modesto, California, preaching a parish mission at St. Joseph's Church. We opened up last night with just over 500 people, which was a wonderful opening night uh, crowd uh, for this parish size, and we're very, very happy with that. And we talked about uh, kicking off this week as the first week of Advent, which also inaugurates the entire liturgical year. So really yesterday, the, the first Sunday of Advent, uh, is our New Year's Day. Why? Because, again, our secular and temporal lives um, are called to revolve around the beauty and reality of the liturgical year. And, uh, and so, really, we make our New Year's resolutions on the first Sunday of Advent as Catholic Christians, at least we should, and uh, then we renew those resolutions on the secular New Year's Day, which is January 1st, the great solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, and the octave or eighth day of the celebration of Christmas. And so uh, there you have it. And then, of course, uh, during Advent, uh, again, we see this season leading up to Christmas. It focuses on the two comings of Christ, and it is a beautiful place to start celebrating the liturgical year in the home, the domestic church. Again, as the first Sunday of Advent each year begins the new liturgical year in the life of the church. We talked about that last week more in depth when we focused just on Advent, and some callers shared with us what their Advent traditions are 
as a family. And uh, we thank those callers for calling in. So today I want you to call in. If, if, if the liturgical year is special to you in a special way, you particularly like celebrating the seasons, decorating your home with the different liturgical seasons, and so forth, uh, it may be in unison with the regular earthly seasons that we go through the 12-month year. Um, coalescing both the spiritual with the temporal, the, 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 the spiritual with the secular, give us a call and give us a witness about that. Some of the days that fall during this uh, early Advent season up to Christmas, you know, we also have St. Nicholas Day, uh, known as St. Nicholas Day Shoes. This happens on December 6th on St. Nicholas's Feast Day. It is a fun way to celebrate the Feast of St. Nicholas, uh, an early church bishop, and we see this a lot, especially in the Scandinavian countries. Um, then there's St. Lucy's Day celebration. Again, this is celebrated during Advent on December 13th, St. Lucy's Feast Day. Those uh, who suffer from eye ailments, this is their their uh, patron saint, uh, and it's a Catholic family favorite. And then, of course, we celebrate Christmas with Christ truly at the center. It's so easy today in today's world to get caught up in the Santa Claus machine, but really uh, putting Christ at the center uh, of Christmas is a great way to live liturgically. So, uh, you know, we, we have these beautiful saints' days in Advent leading up to Christmas, and uh, these are great things to call, to, to recall as to how we live our faith throughout the liturgical year. And there's numerous other ways, too. You know, um, just to mention on a, at a basic level, a statuary and icons and a crucifix in the home's primary gathering place, or even a holy water font at the door that gets used the most uh, to recall our baptism in Christ. And we bless ourselves as we exit the home, and we bless ourselves as we enter the home. These are further expressions of the, of the family as a domestic church, right? Uh, how about the enthronement of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the home and or the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the home? I uh, recently did a Sacred Heart enthronement for uh, one of the new homes of, of my deacon brother and, and his wife that they purchased there in Kentucky near the Fathers of Mercy. Um, enthronement of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the home, again, or the Immaculate Heart of Mary. How about parents blessing your children before a journey? Uh, maybe they're going off to college. Maybe they're going off to the military. Maybe they're going off to camp as an adolescent for a week. Um, again, the domestic church lived in the home. How about a family book of petitions or a book of intentions uh, in the home for all to write in their particular intentions for the family to pray for when the family prays the daily rosary or, or the Divine Mercy Chaplet? Um, you know, these are all ways that, you, that, that we celebrate the faith throughout the liturgical year, and uh, these are beautiful, beautiful ways to do it. The liturgical seasons, you can make a different uh, wreath for your door, you know, the ordinary time with the green, river, green ribbon, um, the, uh, the Advent or Lent with a violet ribbon uh, around the wreath of, of your home, and then change it out to a Christmas wreath or a white wreath uh, for, for Easter with a gold ribbon. Uh, how about having your home and property blessed? Uh, by a priest, uh, especially right after purchase, uh, t uh, purchasing it and, and having the subsequent Sacred Heart enthronement done. Uh, how about uh, celebrating confirmation and baptism anniversaries uh, with your children? That's a beautiful way to recall uh, our, our life in Christ as being baptized Christians, confirmed Christians. How about First Holy Communion anniversaries, celebrating the first time you receive Jesus truly present in the Most Holy Eucharist? So, uh, in short, you know, families are called upon by the church to set up and identify their homes as dwellings which exhibit a true ecclesial spirit, I like to say it, the domestica ecclesia, the 
domestic church. Um, this is a, a phrase we get from uh, St. Augustine. He was the first one to use the phrase domestica ecclesia, and of course there's many ways that this can be done. And in addition to, parents may have their homes, uh, as I said, blessed and then celebrate s- such events like a home blessing with a, a special meal and have, invite Father over for that meal who, when he, right after the blessing that's served, you know. Uh, how about a holy day of obligation like the Immaculate Conception or the Feast Day of the Saint of your child's name, celebrating that saint's feast day? Maybe you have a daughter named Lucy. How about a special meal on St. Lucy's feast day of, of December 13th? So there's all kinds of things that can be done, and uh, we want to make sure that sacred scripture has a prominent place of... of um, of honor in the home, again, maybe in that room where the family most gathers. Uh, Also, you know, the importance of praying before meals. Um, How about a copy of of some of the classics in your home Catholic library? You know, uh, St. Thomas Thomas, uh, Akempis' Imitation of Christ, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. How about St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul or St. Teresa of Avila's The Way of Perfection? All these classics, and these are the way that we can see that the family home is indeed a domestic church throughout the liturgical year. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We'd like to give a big shout-out to some longtime members of the EWTN Radio family, our good friends at Our Lady of Victory Radio in Lubbock, Texas, celebrating eight years with us. Congratulations to Jonathan Metzger and his whole team at Our Lady of Victory Radio from your friends here at EWTN. Wide open phone lines for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. You know, Father Wade is an adult convert. One of the things, geez, more than 20 years ago now when I entered the church that I found so refreshing uh, from my evangelical days was indeed the liturgical year. And mm-hmm. and the way it really, as you stated earlier, gives us the opportunity to live through the whole of salvation history every year. Yeah, that's right. That's why the Benedictine order has a beautiful phrase that the liturgy and the liturgical year uh, provide the mystery of Christ made present. The mystery of Christ made present, and of course, in the Eucharist, in a in a par excellence kind of way, you know, coming through, uh, going along here with the liturgical year, following uh, the celebration of Christmas, you know, there's Saint Valentine's Day. A lot of people don't know that our secular Valentine's Day, in the culture, originated from a third century martyr saint's feast day. How about that? Huh? He died for the faith. Then there's Saint Patrick's Day. Same thing with Saint Patrick. Uh, you know, if you celebrate it as a family, make it about a saint, not about the leprechaun and green beer, you know. Uh, We can have the green beer as a mode of celebration, you know, with the fine meal, but don't make it primarily just about the green beer. Uh, Then there's the St. Joseph's Altar, very, very popular with the Italian culture. This family home devotion is more obscure than other Catholic traditions, uh, and there's a strong Italian tradition to it, but it has grown over the decades across cultures where you make an uh, an, uh, altar in your home in honor of St. Joseph, and it's... it's, uh, uh, Brought to it is 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 
brought breads and pastries and so forth in celebration of St. Joseph as the provider of the family. Then we want to truly observe Lent, right? Coming through the year, advancing through the year here. Observing Lent before Easter is so important when striving to live the liturgical year within the home. There can be a family uh, penance that's carried out together. There can be uh, individual penances that are carried out together. Uh, For example, the 14 works of mercy, um, the the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. So we want to practice these good works, not just uh, as individuals, but also as, as a family. That's important, too. The, the family unit, again, the domestica ecclesia, very, very important. And, of course, with the celebration of Easter, with Christ at the center, his, his resurrection following his passion death, it comes his resurrection, and then 40 days after that, his ascension, with Christ at the center of this four-event event that we call the Paschal Mystery. Again, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. We want to celebrate it just like Christmas. Be sure to make Easter about the lamb and not about the bunny, right? I think that's important. Uh, a May altar, or honoring the Blessed Virgin Mary in May. May is the month of Mary, and uh, October is the month of the rosary. So in May, you know, many parishes, Jack, have the May crowning of the Blessed Virgin statue. Uh, it, could be, um, it could be in... Uh, uh, inside the church, it could be outside the church, or, or whatever, you know, but we honor the Blessed Mother. How about Pentecost, often considered the birthday of the church? This is another great Catholic solemnity. We need to celebrate it uh, in, with some form of evangelization, because at Pentecost, the apostles went out, right? Then how about All Saints Day, uh, November 1st? This is a Catholic family favorite that provides a great way to overcome the uh, secularly celebrated and often occultic Halloween. Have your children dress up as saints, you know, instead of uh, the scary the scary characters. How about, again, baptism anniversaries? I've mentioned that. You can celebrate the anniversaries of your kids' baptisms and pull out uh, those baptismal certificates and mark your calendar. And if you kept their baptismal gown, uh, pull it out and, and show it to the family. These are things that can be done, uh, celebrated very simply and very beautifully. Uh, this means a lot to the children, especially when they're smaller and, and young adolescents. And again, the saints' feast days of your children's patron saints and so forth. And again, I can't say enough about the home altar and the family room that gets used the most, uh, and also decorating accordingly according to the liturgical seasons with its, its uh, variation of colors, the penitential violet for Lent and Advent, the ordinary time green, feasts and solemnities of our Lord, uh, is white and gold, uh, the saints and the Blessed Virgin, uh, white, and, and, and so forth. So there's all kinds of things that can be done here, and I think that's really, really important. How about the praying Compline as a family? Compline is the shortest of the breviary prayer periods. Um, it, it only takes maybe about five to seven minutes to pray. I know some families that pray, while they can't pray the whole breviary or the whole divine office, they do pray Compline together, and I think that's very, very beautiful. Beautiful, And of course, uh, the family rosary and the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And if you have small children, alternate those two beaded prayers on alternating nights. You know, one night rosary, one night chaplet, one night rosary, one night chaplet. And your children will grow up knowing those two staple beaded prayers uh, that are in and of themselves, part of the history of salvation. Look at the 20 mysteries of the rosary, how they, they comb through the life of Christ and what he's brought us through his paschal mystery. And then, of course, the uh, Divine Mercy Chaplet is very Eucharistic. We, we offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity 
of, of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, an atonement for our sins and those of the whole world, a petition and prayer to the Father while praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Very, very Eucharistic prayer. So there's all kinds of things here that can be done as we go through the liturgical year, and uh, we cannot uh, miss this opportunity to really make our secular lives revolve around uh, the liturgical year of Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Melissa's watching us on YouTube, and she says, Hello, Father Wade. We're enjoying your beautiful parish mission here at St. Joseph's. Oh, thank you, Melissa. Yes, we had a beautiful turnout last night, uh, just over 500 people. And uh, it was a great crowd and uh, very responsive to the material that was, pre- that was presented. The title of our four-night parish mission here at St. Joseph's is The Most Holy Eucharist, Gift, and Sacrament. And the opening talk, the first talk of the first night last night on Monday night, was titled The Eucharist as Foreshadowed in Both the Old and New Testaments, huh? Uh, from the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek to that mysterious bread-like substance called the manna raining down on the Israelites as they fled Egypt from their slavery that fed them for 40 years, to David and the soldiers being fed the showbread from the house of the Lord, the temple, because uh, that was the only bread that was available. There's so many foreshadowings, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Bethlehem, where our, our Lord was born, means house of bread, huh? Uh, we, the English word tabernacle means uh, tent in, in the Latin, tabernaculum. You know, the, the, the three-trope prayer known as the Angelus, the third trope there, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that's, that's not too good of an English translation. The, the Latin says, and the word became flesh, and he pitched his tent among us, his tabernaculum, his tabernacle, uh, because a, a shepherd stays with his sheep uh, to ward off predators and r- ravenous wolves. So he will pitch his tent in the pastures and remain with his sheep. And that's the tabernaculum, the tent in the, in the Latin. And uh, we get the English word tabernacle from that. So our Lord pitches his tent inside of our Catholic churches with the most holy Eucharist being reserved even after Mass for the sick and the homebound. So uh, this was our message last night. And then tonight, Melissa, the the second night, Tuesday night, is titled The Church Fathers on Eucharistic Doctrine, where I'm going to give quite a few quotes from the beautiful encyclical uh, from 1965, right after the Second Vatican Council closed, called Mysterium Fidei, the Mystery of Faith, uh, that was issued by now Pope Saint uh, Paul VI. Uh, One of the things I said last night was that Vatican II uh, has the Eucharist as its two bookends. At the beginning, when it opened in 1965, uh, excuse me, 1962, uh, now Pope St. John XXIII uh, canonized St. Peter Julian Amard, uh, the founder of the Blessed Sacrament Fathers, a great, great apostle of the Eucharist. Why did John XXIII do that? Because he wanted to put an emphasis of the importance on the Eucharist as he convened this council and opened it up. And then, of course, he, he died before the council was completed in 65, and Pope Paul VI, his successor, completed it. And right after the council closed in 1965, what does Paul VI do? He issues the encyclical Mysterium Fidei, Mystery of Faith, which has some 200 quotes in it from early church fathers of the first seven to eight centuries defending the Eucharistic doctrine. 
that from the words of consecration onwards at Mass, no longer ordinary bread and wine, but truly, really, and substantially, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have it. The two bookends of Vatican II uh, is a strong, strong emphasis on the Eucharist. So our second night tonight, again, is titled uh, The Church Fathers on Eucharistic Doctrine. Hopefully we'll have another great crowd tonight. We're really looking forward to that. Enjoy that tonight, Melissa, with all of your uh, parish mates there at St. Joseph's. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Still plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Vicki writes in, she says, While praying the rosary this morning with EWTN, Father prayed the devotional of the fifth mystery when Jesus said he thirsts. There was a bowl of vinegar that they dipped a sponge into, and Vicky wants to know why there would be vinegar available. The vinegar would help quench the thirst precisely because of its bitterness. So to get, you know, when we're really thirsty, maybe we've been working outside and we drink water, we want more water, right? But vinegar would help quench the very... Uh, uh, um, thirst of the thirst, if you will. It helps quench that, and that was done to criminals so that uh, if they were already in agony enough in the process of dying, uh, that there was some mercy shown in, in not having them thirst uh, while they were dying. And so they were given the, the, the soaked sponge of hyssop uh, to, to kind of um, uh, not necessarily bite on, but put between the top of their mouth and their tongue and suck it inward, uh, the, the hiss up the sponge with the vinegar on it to help quench that thirst. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Richard is in North Carolina listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Richard, you are on with Father Wade. Father Wade, how you doing? Great show as always. I've got, I want something clarified. I've heard from two different speakers. Uh, Father David Anders, Dr. David Anders, said the other day, it might have been today, that uh, Lucifer did not have the beatific vision. I heard something from, and it was a great uh, series by Father John Ricardo, and uh, chapters, uh, Acts 29, his, his program, and he, was, and he said it was very, very clear that Lucifer was right there, had the beatific vision, but through his arrogance and his pride was cast out, because uh, when we come back, we will be a little bit uh, one step above the angels, not to control them, but we will have, and he couldn't stand that, which way he was cast out. But David Andrews said the other, uh, I just heard that he said that Lucifer did not have the beatific vision, though he was a spirit, he was close, but he didn't have that. Could you uh, kind of clarify that, please? Yeah, great question, Richard. Thank you. And I would have to hear the answer of Dr. Anders, who's, who's an excellent apologist for the faith, so I don't want to say anything against what he said, because I don't know exactly what he said other than what you've just shared. In the sense that Satan is pure spirit and does not have eyes, he didn't see, quote-unquote, God or see the beatific vision like we are called to literally see God a glimpse of which is given in Exodus with Moses seeing the face of God, and yet God remains hidden at the same time. God is transcendent. But in heaven, we will, with the human eyes, see God literally. So maybe that was the distinction Dr. Anders was trying to make. Uh, I don't think Dr. Anders would refute what Father Ricardo said, another great apologist for the faith, that indeed, uh, prior to the fall, all the angels were, were good. There were no bad angels called devils, right? Uh, but once they were given uh, the word 
by the Word Himself that there would be a creature that God Himself would one day assume the nature of. This made Satan very, very envious, and this is something that, that Fulton Sheen really uh, has done several pieces on, the fact that uh, God made us in His image and likeness so that one day He could take on our image and likeness, okay, in His second divine personage, the Son, having a human nature just like ours in all ways but sin, right? So Jesus took on human beingship. He took on a human nature, but he remained God. He remained a divine person, specifically the second person of the Trinity. So the angels were given a choice to either choose to stay with God and to be our helpers on earth, or to choose against God and become our tempters on earth. And the chief angel, tradition holds, was Lucifer, meaning light, okay, and he got a light bearer. And uh, he chose against God, and he became the leader of the fallen angels in hell, who again are our tempters on earth. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see necessarily a problem with what the two men answered, if they indeed answered like you said they answered. Uh, maybe the, the nuance was not understood on your part about uh, Dr. Anders uh, answering in regards to the angels being pure spirit. Uh, because they are, and in that sense, they don't have physical eyes, okay? The human person has physical eyes, so our beatific vision will be different from the beatific vision beheld by the angels, who are pure rational spirit. I'm talking about the good angels now. Their, their knowledge of the beatific vision, their partaking of the beatific vision, is different than the way that we will partake in it, precisely because we're, we're creaturial, we're, we, we're creatures, we're physical, we're, we're fed through the five senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. So when the body and soul are reunited after the second coming of Christ, these five senses will be enacted, okay? We'll, we'll possess them because precisely we'll possess a body. The angels don't have that. So I say all that, I explain all that, because maybe that's the angle that Dr. Andal Anders was coming from uh, in response to Lucifer not seeing, quote-unquote, S-E-E-I-N-G, uh, regarding Lucifer not seeing the beatific vision, not seeing God in the beatific vision. Great question. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833 833- 288-3986. Be sure to check out the Holy Rosary tonight and every night, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. In the evenings, we have a beautiful treatment of the prayer with Father Benedict Rochel and Simonetta, kind of a mixture of, of uh, prayers and song. And, of course, tonight being Tuesday, they'll be praying the Sorrowful Mysteries. That's the Holy Rosary tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time with Father Benedict Groeschel and Simonetta right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Felix in San Antonio, Texas, listening on the EWTN app. Felix, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Yes, good afternoon, Father Wade. And good afternoon. Hi. Uh, I, I want to ask, when a person uh, passes away, uh, what is re and my, if I was to be given advice, like to repay, pray for the repose of their, of their soul, can you please explain what repose means, sure. is, you know, in a Catholic viewpoint, please? Sure, that's a great question, especially since we're still technically in the month of November, these last uh, two days, the 29th and the 30th, the month of the holy souls, the members of the church suffering, right, also known as members of the church penitent. Uh, they're part of the three-tiered hierarchy of the doctrine of the communion of saints, the members of the church triumphant in heaven, 
those of us still living on earth fighting the good fight of faith, uh, are members of the church militant. And then there's the holy souls in purgatory who are assured heaven. Uh, They're known as the members of the church suffering, but also known as the members of the church penitent. And we forget that second title, and it is mentioned in the catechism, so it's important to to say that. Um, By repose, quote, end quote, uh, Felix, we simply mean it as the English word means it in definition, a state of rest, a state of tranquility, uh, a state of, of, of um, peacefulness. So when we pray for the repose of souls, we want them to be at rest. We want them to know we are praying for them. So when you hear the phrase within the life of a Catholic or the Catholic Church, pray for the blessed repose of the soul of such and such, when we pray for the holy souls in purgatory, it's a teaching of the Church that our prayers help alleviate their fulfilling of their temporal punishment. We can even completely relieve them of their temporal punishment by carrying out a plenary indulgence on their part, okay? Um, So we want to help get them to a, a place of repose. And even while temporal punishment is going on in purgatory, we can pray that be alleviated. So we want to pray for the holy souls to be in a state of rest, uh, a state of tranquility, uh, a state of repose, a state of peacefulness. Even if the temporal punishment is still going on, if there's any way that we can partake in helping to lessen that or alleviate it altogether by offering a plenary indulgence on their behalf for for a soul in purgatory, then we want to do that. Uh, You know, uh, you you see it as a noun again, a state of rest or sleep or tranquility. Uh, sleep here is more of the English uh, meaning or the definition added to rest and tra- tranquility. Uh, relaxation, a place a place of repose, a state of repose, and I think that's important. Now, as a verb, repose can also mean situated in a particular place, right? So, in that sense of the verb, let alone the noun definition. Uh, we do believe that the holy souls in purgatory, the members of the church suffering, the members of the church militant, are in a particular place called purgatory, and they're there because at the time of their earthly death, they had not yet fully uh, atoned for the temporal punishment due to their already forgiven mortal and venial sins. In other words, they, they died in a state of grace with no known mortal sin on their soul, but they, they died in a state also that was not yet perfectly purified, they were still attached to creatures. They were still attached to uh, sin, even just venial sin. Um, and when I say attached to creatures, I don't mean creatures in and of themselves. I mean inordinate attachments to creatures, okay? Um, and so even as a verb, when we talk about repose meaning a particular place, um, a, a certain situated place, that also applies in that regard, let alone the, the noun definition of tranquility or a state of rest or a state of peace. So our goal is to pray for the holy souls precisely because we know we can help them as the church teaches so beautifully. Thank you so much, Felix. Great question again on these last two days of November. Very appropriate question. Next stop for us is Columbus, Ohio. Michael is in Columbus listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Michael, you are on with Father Wade. Hello, Father Wade. How Hello, are you? Good, thank you so much. Hey. Good, good. So um, my question is that Trying to figure out, um, trying to figure out why is it that it's hard for our brothers and sisters in the other, you know, other brothers and sisters in the Christian community? It's hard for them to honor Mother Mary, and 
Uh, can you just give me a like one or two statements that I can give them in regards to uh, trying to convince them or trying to let them understand the fact that hey, Mother Mary was actually prepared for this, for the coming of Christ. We thank God that she said yes. And that's how we got our say baby daughter was planted by God himself to get to, to have Mother Mary give birth to his son. So what can I say to them when I meet up with them or eat some if they are arguing with me so strongly that they yeah. yeah. Well, really, introducing somebody to the importance of Mary in the life of the Catholic Church, or the importance of Marian devotion, or why we want to honor her, is to really explain on a natural human plane the love that we have for our own mother, right? Uh, I would ask my mother to pray for me. I remember being much younger uh, when I went out into the working world after college, and I would have job interviews lined up, and I remember asking my mother to pray for me. I came across a bumper sticker the other day that I thought was, was just a great one. Uh, it said, you thought, you thought that the holy, uh, you thought the land that Jesus walked on was holy, meaning the holy land, okay? You thought the land Jesus walked on was holy? How about the womb that bore him? Okay, that, that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's, that's stating something about the mother of God, the second person of the Trinity. So, you know, why, why should we have Mary in devotion? Why is it important? You know, the question might seem a little difficult to answer, but it's, it's actually quite simple because God willed it. We may ask why God would want us to have a relationship with his mother. Wouldn't it distract us from him? Doesn't it seem quite contradictory? No, not necessarily. And our experience attests to it. Let's take, for example, a young man who meets his girlfriend's parents. As he gets to know them, he realizes they're a good family, enjoys being with them, and also starts loving them in a way that's very special. Does that mean that by growing in love for them, he will uh, love his girlfriend less? No, not at all. Not necessarily. Uh, He could even say that the opposite is possible. His love for his girlfriend's family can help him get to know and love his girlfriend even more. So when it comes to marrying devotion, just looking at the natural human plane or the natural human level of family relationships is a beautiful, beautiful way to introduce marrying devotion to other people. Um, How about an image of the Blessed Mother? Well, do you have a picture of your own mother? If you have a picture of your own mother, why can't you have a picture of God's mother, right? In a place of honor in your home, you have a picture of your mom. So something similar happens in our relationship with the Virgin Mary. She's not there to distract us from God. She's there to lead us to Him. And that's very, very important, you know. And we take this from the very beginning of, of uh, you know, that not only the Annunciation, but also the Visitation when, when her cousin Elizabeth says, Hail, full of grace, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me, huh? How is this that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So uh, Marian devotion is a very, very beautiful thing. And uh, the devil doesn't like it. So get ready when you really uh, uh, love our Blessed Mother and show your love for her. And she has one, cons- one, one concern and one concern only. And she tells us what it is at Cana. She says, do whatever he tells you in reference to following her son. Great question. Thank you so much, Michael. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.